Welcome to episode nine, Rogue Bogues, my journey. It has been a long time between drinks. Please forgive me. I have two young kids in the house. I do the weekly basketball show and it's very hard to have a quiet home to get one of these out. And I've had a, a lot of other things going on. Hospital visits, no surgery to look like um, my good self and for my second phase of my career and some sort of modeling, but you are here to listen to the My Journey, so I won't bore you with all those excuses. Let's get rolling. Last episode, episode eight, we finished with my rookie year in the NBA and how that all went about. We now transition to 2006, and we are now preparing, or I am now preparing for my first NBA offseason. So the season for us finished relatively early, first round exit in the playoffs in 2005. We then, uh, I, I then go back to Australia as soon as I could. Um, I didn't hang around literally after we lost, I believe it was game five, flew back from Detroit to Milwaukee. Uh, next day, did all my physicals, exit meetings, all that. The very next day, I was on a flight to Australia. So that's how quickly it happens in the NBA. Um, a lot of my teammates had flights the very next day. We landed from Detroit at you know one or two in the morning. That morning, they usually schedule... The next morning after your last game, whenever that may be, you schedule the following morning immediately, starting at like 7 a.m., exit physicals, exit meetings with the GM and the coach, um, and then some guys flew out that afternoon. Um, so I waited two full days, which is, is pretty rare in the NBA, but flew back to Australia. I wanted to get home. I was homesick. Um, wanted to spend some time back in uh, in Melbourne and in Australia around family, so jumped straight on a jet. I had about maybe a month or so off where I did didn't do much basketball, just kind of cleared the head and went and got some warm weather up north uh, in, I believe, I went to Port Douglas, first time I ever went to northern Queensland, had a holiday up there. That was all good fun. And then it was time to prepare for the 2006 World Championships, which were in Japan. I also had uh, my trainer, who we're going to call Steve, with me now for most off-seasons. The bulk of his role was in the off-season, so, you know, we would... Um, do our own workouts, individual workouts. If it, if it wasn't uh, part of a national team camp, for instance, we only had two or three world championship camps leading up to the world championship. So between that time, between camps, uh, we would work out, we would lift weights, we would um, go find recovery, we would do extra conditioning, whatever it was. And he kind of oversaw my program. Um, and that's what we kind of did. We, every now and then we get a few other bodies in, some kids from college and whatnot and go and have a few people to, to play, you know, two-on-two two with or one-on-one on one with. But for the most part, it was individual sessions, um, a lot of work. He was um, he was big on hours on the court. At that point, it was tour days, I believe, in the off-season. So morning and night. Morning was more weights, conditioning, uh, ball handling, kind of high heart rate type sessions where just a lot of running and ball handling and conditioning mixed in with basketball and your weights. And then the afternoon was usually bulk shooting. Um, it was pure European-style um, format for off-season development and training so they were pretty tough and then obviously going you know into a world championships um, Brian Gorgian was a coach at the time I still remember the training camps they were notorious for being tough uh, we had three or four camps leading into that that world championships um, and before I get to the world championships during that NBA season I had my parents um, scope out a I was looking for a warehouse to put a basketball court in. Um, so when I was home in the 2005 off season, even the 2006 off season, 
I came into a little problem with, with, with just getting access to basketball courts in Australia. So I knew I was going to spend my off seasons in Australia. Um, whenever I could get out of the US for the off season, it would be in Australia. And uh, I'd come home and try to work out. And the problem in Australia is that you might have a gym that you go to every day, a basketball court. And the night before, a school might call and say, hey, we need to book out your whole facility for the day. Or, you know, some randoms four people want to book it out for badminton and they're going to rent the whole court out more times than not. And um, looking back, we probably should have tried to just book it out and just pay up front, but um, they couldn't really do that. And they'd always, always book out to bulk schools because they'd make more money, but um, probably should have got the checkbook out and just, you know, booked out a whole, a whole number of uh, days that were just ours. But anyhow, that, that started to frustrate me because some days you show up for practice every day is 10 a.m. and you show up and, oh, sorry, you're into the court out. So I started getting a little frustrated with that. Then a lot of courts, say you found a court um, that didn't have a weight room. So then we'd have to drive either before to a different weight room, then get in the car, drive to another court, which is 30 minutes away. You know, first world problems, but not the routine I was used to in the NBA. Everything's in-house, right? And then third was recovery, pool, that kind of stuff. Then going to a leisure center or something to do all that. So it was like, you know, in a big city like Melbourne, these places were all 20, 30 minutes away from each other. Um, you end up having what should be a three or four hour day turns into basically a, what would it be? Six, six hours with travel. So yeah, it just ended up being something that I wasn't, um, wasn't keen on continuing to do. So I ended up, um, tell my parents during that season, Hey, look for a warehouse that can fit a court. So we'll fly and blind with everything with that to get the measurements. Um, and the warehouse was just, big enough to put a full-size court. Like I think we lost a couple of um, centimeters because of the walls because I bought, I mean, I did this thing properly, man. I did um, everything from, I, I flew baskets out from from the US, like actual baskets that we had in our arena. Um, I got our equipment manager to source me two of those brand new. Um, I'm talking the whole thing, like, you know, the, the support, the stanchion, the, the, the metal, the metal arm that comes out, the backboard, the rim, the net, everything. I wanted everything the same as an NBA facility. So um, I did all that, flew all that out. That was a that was a, a tricky project within itself just because, you know, these things weigh a lot and getting them on a ship, getting them off a ship, getting them on a truck, did all that. Um, so we started that process in the, in the off-season of 2006. We started to basically get that facility ready to be a facility. So I decided to extend the office. It had a little tiny office coming off the warehouse. I think of a square warehouse, had a little tiny office coming up. I knocked that all down, extended that into a massive kind of another square room off it. Put a pool in at the bottom, hot tub, cold tub, steam room. Up on stairs on top of that, I put a lounge, had a TV in it, um, had showers uh, and a washing, uh, like a washing laundry, a couple of washing machines and dryers just for my plan was to make this an NBA facility type facility. So one-stop shop, I can show up wearing a suit and tie, get there, get changed. Everything I need is there, right? That was the plan from the start. So it was doing all that. It was putting in a court. We, um, my father helped with that. We put in a state-of-the-art court that was actually packed, meaning that it was uh, 20, you know, 15, 20 centimeters, um, probably not that much actually, probably about 10 centimeters off the, off the concrete. So they pack it a little bit. So the, so the, um, the wood has, has a little bit of flexibility in it. Fantastic for your joints, your back. And I knew I'd be spending a lot of time on that court. So 
you know, the, the way some basketball stadiums go is if, if you ever get very, very sore after playing at a basketball stadium, chances are they've laid the wood straight onto concrete and you'll feel every, every part of that in your joints and knees and hips and back. So I, I wanted to make sure this was state of the art, so much so that the, the leveling of the concrete costs us as much as laying the floor down, if that makes sense. So these fellas come in with the laser cutting machine and they got basically every portion of that big warehouse within a couple of millimeters um, which is which is you know, commendable. That's very very hard to do because if you've got if you've got um, ups and downs on your floor or one one part drops, your your wood's going to drop or raise in those areas. So I, I you know spent a shitload of money just on the court, and then we put um, all our weight training equipment down the side of the court because it was a bit wider than a normal court. So we had all our squat racks and weights all, all down there, and and like I said, everything one stop shop, right? And I remember we. Uh, we got the court put in pretty quickly, but the extension for the pool, um, I, was put, I put some windows in so there was some natural light. All that was happening while while the court was already done. So I was actually training in Melbourne winter um, in this place with no windows that weren't, I remember there was no windows on there. It was you know 11 degrees outside, uh, but the court was there where the baskets, baskets were all there. Um, it was gated so no one could go in and steal stuff. But my trainer was like, no, nah, we're going in there training. Just wear your, wear your tracksuit pants and your um, hoodie or your jumper and we're going to work. And I, I remember that. I had a little chuckle about that. And I just remember thinking, oh, I can't wait till next season when this is all done. And then uh, by next season, it was pretty much the bones of it were all done. But to be honest, it took me three or four years to slowly do different things to it. I ended up adding more baskets. I ended up adding a curtain that separated the courts. So that's just um, a little detail on on the facility I built and why I built it. Um, it just made sense and and it was it was great because I'd have physios come and visit me um, instead of going to their clinic. I'd, I'd I'd pay them to come out to see me. They'd do my physio. I'd go straight onto the court, you know, and do my recovery. I'd have masseuses come there. Um, you know, it was just perfect for me where I could I could go somewhere, um, lock the gate, lock the door, and go to work, and nobody could kind of bother me um, in the middle of my session. I had I had a real issue and. Um, some people have actually commented to me on this uh, topic on social media. I, when I was working out at these public facilities, I was big on no distractions during training, meaning that I wanted to go in and get my work done, right? Now, a lot of people out in the public, um, they don't understand uh, time and place. Uh, I've had this discussion before, and I'd be in the middle of a training session sometimes, swearing, getting through a drill, not swe sweating, sorry, not swearing, sweating, getting through a drill, need to make three more to, to end the drill, whatever, and a mum would walk on the court with her pram and ask for an autograph, or somebody would, an adult would force their kid in the middle of the workout, and you almost trample them, and it did, it did frustrate me, and I'd, I'd ever rarely get mad at the kid, I'd, I'd really have a crack at the adult and be like, look, I've, I've got no problem taking a photo, I've got no problem signing an autograph, just please let me finish my session. Um, and yeah, that, that, that was not um, something that people took lightly. They thought that it was me being arrogant, me being an asshole. And it's just one of those things you have to deal with that I had to put my foot down because I, I want whatever my, my amount of work is that I need to do, I need to do it. So that frustrated me going to public facilities because people thought that I owed them something. Like a lot of people thought that, oh, it's, he's just here shooting hoops. If I interrupt for just for a minute, what's a big deal? And um, all of a sudden you have two or three people do that a session. My trainer started to get angry at it as well and getting mad at people. So that was part of the mindset of, of building my own place where I could just go in. I remember going in there sometimes at 10 o'clock at night and clearing my head and getting shots up or getting a workout in or getting some recovery in. 
especially with the injuries I had late in my career, I could just, I had a key to the door 24-7 and it was mine um, and, and no one could say I couldn't go in there. So that was the mindset. I invested a lot of money in that. It, it probably, you know, if we're being honest, it probably cost me with the building and everything I did close to $2 million. Um, obviously I can afford it, most people say, but that was an investment I made into myself. I, uh, I made that investment and if I didn't have that, I probably wouldn't be playing 14, 15 years professionally, right? With the amount of injuries I had, it was a, it was a godsend looking back and, and really served a great purpose. So that started in that off season. So we end up um, going off to the world championships. So we have our camps here. Pre the world championships, we play New Zealand in a four game series. Now that's the genius of, of basketball Australia and basketball New Zealand is they, they, they somehow formulated a four game series and anyone that's great or even not great at maths can probably figure out four doesn't fit well if it's 2-2. Two, two. <laughs> um, and you'd be correct. The series finished 2-2 two, two, and then it went on percentage and, and New Zealand won the series based on percentage. Just horrendous. Make it three, make it five, make it seven. Four, six, eight just does not work. But anyway, we um, we we won one in New Zealand, lost one, then we won one in Melbourne and then lost the fourth game. Um, and I remember we, we were, we were it, was, it was a, close game towards the end and they banged two or three threes late trying to get the the lead up and they they beat us and um it was 2-2 and the games didn't mean anything they were just a warm-up friendly but i remember it was just really annoying because i was like this should be a game five we should play for all the marbles but um that's just the way it worked out that was our preparation going to the world uh the world cup we then um go over to china my first ever visit to beautiful China and experiencing the the pristine air they have over there and all the fun things that come along with that. And um, we play in, I think, the Boris Stankovic Cup out there, playing um, a tournament. I think we we uh, I think we finished second in that one. Um, or it might have been the Diamond Ball, actually. It might have been the Diamond Ball tournament. Um, and, and, yeah, we played in that one. And... Um, yeah, that was a warm up basically for the for the World Cup. The World Cup then was in Japan. Uh, the way I equate Japan, coming from China, was coming from from a, a really poor suburb to the Bel Air of, of your area, or was going from China to Japan. It was like so close in region, yet completely different. It was it was actually amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, the. Uh, the, I remember the China tour, um, which was about, we were there for about 15 days and like you can't, you know, they tell you not to brush your teeth with the water, use bottled water, um, don't eat anything that's washed underwater. So bye-bye vegetables for the most part, lettuce, all that kind of stuff. Um, fruit that's washed underwater, you can, it's pretty full on because we've had guys turn green on tours before and get very, very ill um, because the water alone has has more bacteria than it does you know in australia or america and you gotta get used you know a lot of people that live there are used to it we're not um us spoiled westerners so that was a, an adjustment but um i remember china real well because there was a big push for a lot of players and coaches and brian gorgian especially there was a big um craze around you could buy prestige watches that were uh fake knockoffs but they looked they looked the money right the problem was they stopped working after a couple of months or a hand would fall off or as Brian Gorgian mentioned on, on the In Conversation episode we had with him a few weeks ago, he was rebounding and the glass face just fell off and hit the floor. That's the problem. But you, some of these watches, man, you wouldn't even know the difference. And I've got some some nice luxurious watches and I, I saw these fake ones. I was like, wow, it looks very, very similar to what I have. Like you have to be, you have to know what you're looking for to spot the difference, be kind of a, a you know somewhat expert in the field. But anyways, that was a fun part of the tour. 
um, non-basketball-wise. And then the other one was, it was my foray into poker, thanks to Aaron Bruce. So I had a PlayStation Portable. I bought that my rookie year in the NBA. I bought pretty much every game you could get with it. And I had World Series of Poker, but I just never played it. Um, small note, I hated watching poker on TV. Like I thought, whenever I'd see it on ESPN, I'd see, I'd see poker, I'd be like, how the hell is this a sport? This is bullshit. Why is this on TV? It's boring. Blah, 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 blah. So Aaron Bruce and I got talking. He he played at um, Baylor University in Texas. Yeah, so you're obviously was familiar with Texas Hold'em because you're going to know how to play that while you're living in Texas no matter what the what is going on. And he goes, have you ever played it? I go, nah, I have no idea what, like, I know basic poker hands, but I don't know how to play Texas Hold'em. I bet, like, I knew, I knew five-card draw to an extent, but uh, I wasn't, you know, familiar with betting and all that kind of stuff. He goes, nah, once you get, once you get the hang of it, you'll love it. So he just taught me Texas Hold'em, just the intricacies of small blind, big blind, the river, the turn, the flop, if you don't know, sorry, the flop, the turn, the river, if you don't know what that is, you just Google it. The the flop is um, first three cards and the, the turn is the fourth card. The river is the, the the fifth card, fifth and last card, and then um, and then you got blinds that you have to put in small blind, big blind. Who's who's got the dealer button? Um, he didn't teach me the the, the detail of, of position and betting and how the strategy works because I was literally a beginner. So he just taught me the basics of how to play. So I started playing it on my PSP and, and got hooked. And that that basically for those that, that know me and follow me know that I love to play some poker and. He was the guy that um, I have to credit with with teaching me, and, and Aaron Bruce was with me in the AS as well. So we had a pretty good friendship, and he um, he taught me how to play Texas Hold'em poker, and now I play Pot Limit Texas Texas Hold'em Pot Limit are my favorite too. Probably Pot Limit's trumped it by by one, but that's where that that started. So it wasn't all about basketball. I learned uh, I learned some new things there on that tour, which was cool, and that was because we were on trains, planes, automobiles, buses, you know, whatever, you name it, we were on it, traveling all over China, playing different games leading into into Japan. But we get to Japan, and um, look, we, we took a team over with a lot of first-time boomers and probably a few last-time boomers, right? So guys, that was probably the only time they played for the boomers. Uh, a young and experienced team, not not a whole lot of talent on the world stage, kind of went behind the ears, including myself. I'd only been to one Olympics, so not a lot, not a lot of experience internationally for me. And look, we just didn't have a, a, a team that was what we see today with the Boomers, where you you hey, we're a top four team, like we're we're competing for a medal. It, for us, it was like, hey, let's try to get to the, the at least the quarterfinals, and whatever happens beyond that is 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 a win right that that was that was australian basketball in 2006 it was what it was 2000 olympics in sydney if everyone remembers all the big names retired they were very very old um a lot of those big names now this is an argument that you can have is sometimes when a lot of stars play till till their dying days um it then can hinder the 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 the, the young junior development because the young guys never really get an opportunity to be in the fray and we kind of saw that to an extent, you know, and that's not discrediting all the legends that have played for the Boomers. This goes for for, for, for NBA clubs, NBL clubs, um, national teams especially. You want to honor your legends by letting them retire on their own terms, but at the same time, it's your program's job to, to look to the future of like, hang on a second, these guys, if these guys will retire tomorrow, what do we have back there? The unfortunate answer was we didn't have much. We had, we had a lot of NBL players. Um, still some decent players. Shane Heal played in 04 and then retired. Matty Nielsen was still floating around. Jason Smith. But we just didn't have enough of that young oomph to, to really carry it for the next 10 years. So that was always something I thought about. If I was ever involved in BA, I would, I would, you know, there has to be a precedent for the coach. And this is tough. 
precedent for the coach to look not only to win the tournament, but for the future. And the unfortunate reality is coaches are hired on a, on a two-year deal or a four-year deal or, or, or you've got a two Olympics, that's your deal, eight years. But you somewhat need to have KPIs around that where, you're, where, where development, winning trumps everything. You want to win a medal, but there needs to be some iron. I think it's probably 30, 70, 25%, 75%, 25% being an eye to development. The other 75 is winning. Whenever you go 100% all costs winning with a national team program, you're going to have you're going to have mountains that you're at the top of, and then you're going to have cliffs that you fall off. The good national teams um, that generally have longevity and sustained competitive results, tournament after tournament. You look at Serbia, um, former Yugoslavia. You look at um, Argentina. Some of these countries, they, they're very, very good at that. And they do have legends playing on, but it's not like you, you take uh, Luis Scola of Argentina, for example. He's played with two or three different generations of Argentinians, but that whole team's not stacked with 30, 40-year-olds, right? They, they have a good balance there, so and they continue to be competitive. But that's just an example that I had and made me think of this World Championships because we had we had a lot of guys that were, no disrespect to them, we had a lot of guys that were just, you know, still wet behind the ears like myself. You know, um, we we just we just hadn't played a lot of basketball together, and we're a new team. So anyhow, we beat Brazil to open, which was a big win for us. Brazil were pretty decent. They had, they had um, Anderson Varejo. I don't know if my former teammate Barbosa was in that one. I can't remember, but they, they had a solid team, and they were they were they were a pretty dominant force from their part of the world. So that was a great. Whenever you can open up any international tournament with a win, it's a win. You take it. You get on with it. Remember, it was an emotional win because we knew. It's probably us or Brazil going to the next round out of this pool. Um, so whoever whoever wins that opening game most likely um, will get through. So we beat them to open. Then we, we played Turkey um, in a close game, the second game, um, and they beat us. They, they were a tough team. It was really, really close to the end. It had a team out of minor, something really sober, with the Milwaukee Bucks on it. And I remember I was pissed losing to him, but they beat us. They were, they were tough, and, and they, they're another example of a team that's, that's pretty consistently decent um they don't have massive drop-offs game three greece now this game for people who have followed the boomers for a long time was one that really really hurt we, we played a fantastic game for 38 minutes 39 minutes of the game uh, we, we 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 battled them we had counters for everything they were doing we were great defensively we looked after the ball and then we get to about the final i think it was the final 40 seconds 45 seconds we're up six um and we we don't get a good shot i think we turn a, a baseline a baseline out of bounds over um and they score i think it was a two so they cut it to four then we inbounded i think it was to david barlow um the next position i'm not sure and, and he ended up turning it over uh mid-court i think they come down bang a three with about 30 odd seconds left they hit the three and then we're up one we get it in again. I can't remember if we turned it over again. I think we did, or, or we took a bad shot, with, which gave them enough time. And literally, they they ran it back at us and hit another three on the basically on the buzzer to beat us. And we had we had no excuses losing that game. We should win that game ninety nine times out of a hundred. And they stole it from us and, and showed us what what a good European team does. They don't panic, and they gave themselves a shot to win it. And they put pressure on us and they beat us. And that that really set up our tournament after that because now. Now we had, um, you know, we had Lithuania coming up, who were one of the tournament favorites at the time. They were a very, very tough team, very well drilled, been together for a long time. They smacked us, like smacked us to a pulp, and we had to win that game, knowing that if we didn't win that game, we're probably going to get 
the last position in our pool. So it would be Turkey, Greece, Lithuania. We get that fourth spot, Brazil five. Qatar was sixth. We knew we had to avoid four because we'll cross over with Team USA's pool and they would be most likely number one. So anyway, Lithuania smacks us. We're like, shit, we're, we're pretty much in fourth. Qatar was a formality. We, be, we beat them. They, they weren't very, very good. Um, I think it was Qatar. It might have been Jordan or Qatar, one of those teams uh, from the Arab Emirates. But um, beat them pretty easily. Formality, we, we get fourth place and we cross over to Team USA. So just an example of how important these tournaments it is to come out, start well and you got to kind of look forward to an extent we do now much more because we know in 2021, 2024 Olympics, 2023 World Champs, we kind of know we're going to be in the mix somewhere for a medal with the squad that we have. So you got to kind of look ahead and know who you're crossing over with and what kind of positions to avoid. Now, you don't, you don't want to avoid anyone, but you'd rather play Team USA later in the tournament for a medal than playing them in a quarters or a semi where they have a chance of knocking you out completely. So teams will throw games. Now, this is very controversial and it happened later on and maybe I'll talk about that when we get to that, that era, but uh, we, had a, we had a tournament where we, we played the percentages and we lost to an Angola team, so we would drop down and not face USA because uh, I think they finished second in their pool. We, went, we dropped down a fourth on purpose or something along those lines and it was a shitstorm in Australia. People were like, how could you do that? You represent your country. Let me give everyone a tip out there. Do I condone it? I don't condone losing, but um, I understand the strategy around better placing yourself to win a medal, and that was what had to be done, and I'm fine with it down down that mindset. Every European team and Asian team in the world would do the same and has done the same in numerous tournaments I've been to. In Australia, we're a little bit precious about, you're wearing the green and gold, you know, you got to... No, no, no. I want to win a medal. If that means that we have to kind of pump the brakes a little bit in a certain game and make it look like a professional loss, that's the unfortunate reality and rules of these tournaments. And they've now changed that to the best of their ability in FIBA to stop that from happening. I commend them for that. But we were the only country in the world not doing it for, for decades upon decades. And it was it hurt us at times. And every European team presented that chance would take it. They'd start their bench, not play their stars. Oh, we lost, you know. Oops, we fell down a third, and now we don't have the USA in a crossover. But our media here in Australia really smacked that program for that and the coaches involved, which I thought was unfair because just, just we're kind of sheltered here. That cricket mentality of don the green and gold and the baggy green. I understand when you look at it from afar, if you don't know basketball, they lost the game on purpose. What? But once you know the history of these international basketball tournaments and Olympics, it makes much more sense. And I've had everything from 2003 World Junior Championships. We beat Croatia in the semifinals. So we're automatically into the, the final of the World Championships, the World Junior Championships in, in 2019. And we are then watching Greece versus Lithuania. They played the second semi. So we're, we stayed after our game to watch that to see who we're playing the next the, two days later in, in the final. In Greece, of all places. So Greece were actually favorites, you know, home team, tournament favorites on, on, on their own soil. And Lithuania were very, very good. Very, very good team. And Linus Clydes and a few other stars on that team. So watching their game, and it was a close game. Lithuania goes on like a 7-0 run. Guess what? Someone from the Greek bench drops a massive bucket of water in front of their bench on the floor. 
while they're on a 7 0 run, while Lithuania's on a 7 0 run, they had no timeouts left or didn't want to burn a timeout. Water goes over the floor. They have to stop the game. It takes them two or three, four, five minutes to um, mop it all up, make sure the court's good and safe. Game starts again. Greece climb back into it. Lithuania, you know, 6 0 run. Bang. Water ends up on the floor. Now, I'm not saying it's right what they're doing, but it's clear as day what they're doing. They're trying to stand, they're trying to get themselves a win and they're doing anything possible until they're told if you do that again, you're getting a technical foul or stop, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's a prime example. And that's what we're dealing with these international tournaments. And I don't condone losing on purpose and throwing games, but I do condone better suiting yourself to get yourself in a better position down the end of a tournament rather than, you know, arguably you beat Angola in that game, you get the US, you're out, you're gone. But we didn't get the US. We ended up losing to Turkey anyway, I think it was, um, in a very, very close game on the buzzer, mind you. But we gave ourselves a better shot, shot to get to the semis. And I will take that over a game that didn't matter against Angola in the pool phases. So that's just a small tidbit around that. So we end up going and playing the USA. We end up now moving cities. We go from a small Japanese city, I can't even remember where we were, to Tokyo. Um, the US is only ever based in big cities in these world championships for obvious reasons. They sell out arenas. And they, they punched us. Uh, they, they beat us by 40. Um, we battled. We battled for the most part. I think it was a close game, first quarter. And then towards the end of the half, they got got a nice lead. And then they blew us out in the in the you know third and fourth quarter. But I remember those teams, um, those USA teams were tough because they used to just pressure full court. It's changed a little bit now. But they used to like, at times we couldn't get the ball over half court. I had to bring the ball up. Some of our guards couldn't really get it over at times just because of the pressure defense. But um like I said, we battled. We had a lot of first-time boomers on that team, um, and I, you can't ask for more than, than, than trying to battle, and, and that's what we did. But um, one other small thing I forgot to mention. So in, in Japan, uh, fireworks, uh, unfortunately, were illegal at the time. You could buy them from like a news agent, bottle rockets and little uh, little small bungers and stuff like that. And um, we, our group, at least myself, Stevie, Aaron Bruce, I think it was I'm not sure if Alex was marriage was on that team. I don't think he was. I think he was in later on. But um, we all went with the AS together. That's all we used to go down to Canberra to Fish Week and, and buy fireworks, and it was the best thing ever. Like we let them off for New Year's and have fun with them or whatever. You know, kids being kids, right? I was still a kid at 20, 21 years old. Like I was still doing stupid stuff and like to have fun and do pranks and all that kind of stuff. So we we went and bought some bought some fireworks and all that. And I remember we were. You know, sitting near a pedestrian crossing, we throw them on the crossing when people were crossing the road. Just just being idiots, doing stupid stuff um, in Japan of all places. So j- those who've been to Japan, it's it's a pure and proper place. Like it's 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 everyone's kind of straight laced and up straight, nicely dressed, tie straightened. That's just kind of the, their society. Everything's very orderly. So you have got these Aussies being absolute idiots, which we were. But um, we had some some bottle rockets. So my genius idea was I was just bored one night I think it was the night before a game and you know the way it works is when you're when your team's on you know hotel room um you're on the same floor everyone kind of leaves their doors open or they put the the latch so the door doesn't lock because guys go in different rooms and hang out with different guys so I um went to Aaron Bruce's room and saw he was just hanging in there by himself so I don't think he saw me um I go into his bathroom and he hears me going to his bathroom, had a bottle rocket, lit it, put it in the um, put in the, the rubbish bin of his bathroom and that thing. Oof, that, was, that was a mistake. Um, the thing went off. 
loud, loud, the loud whistle from fireworks. It just kept going, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> He's like losing his shit. You idiot, what are you doing? So I ran back to my room and I'm sitting in my room. I think Aaron Bruce uh, came back to my room with me and here, knock on the door. I look through the peephole. There's the whole fire squad from their local fire stations on our floor. The guy had an axe in his hand, had all the packs on. And like we didn't we didn't answer the door and um they ended up leaving and then the team manager saw her and he like, I know it was you, I know you did that shit, why are you doing that shit? But uh yeah, man, a small example of the dumb shit we used to do on tour, or I used to do at least. I can't blame anyone else because I used to do a lot of a lot of stupid stuff and I guess that's the upbringing. For those of you who have listened to all of these um my journeys, um, always towing the line of getting in trouble and doing stuff that's a bit, a bit silly. So um that almost got me in a bit of trouble especially being one of the star players you don't usually get that um in those tournaments but uh small tidbits anyway end up end up getting knocked out of that tournament oh how about this so then triggered my memory we we go and party that night it was our last night we go and have some drinks in tokyo and the team usa rolls in we're like these dudes are still in the tournament and they're out partying which which was what it was whatever so I'm not going to name who it was. Um, someone on our team decided to do something silly um, with a cigarette lighter um, around people's hair. And I don't know why he thought that was funny, but that's what he was doing after he had a few drinks. And um, I guess security had caught wind of it and had come to um, come to throw my teammate out. So saw a bit of a kerfuffle. I went over and said, what's going on? And my teammate's like, oh, he's trying to kick me out. He's trying to kick me out. And I'm like, what'd you do? Was it because you were doing what we all told you to stop doing earlier? Like, yeah, yeah, no, blah, blah, blah. And it was a, a little little Japanese fella at the club. He's like, you need to leave. You need to leave. And, and we're just like, oh, I, was, we're, I said, he won't do it again. He's with me. Um, apologize. I'm really sorry. Um, you know, no, you can't do that here, blah, blah, blah. And then because he was a little dude, like just him by himself, like, man, just leave us alone, man. Like, so we... <laughs> basically just said just go away and then within a second turned around and there was like three bodybuilding type dudes that were just like hey time to leave guys so then i'm like pissed at my teammate because we all told him not to do that and i'm like i'm not leaving like you can go dude like it's your fault for just get a cab back to the hotel and the security was like no no no, all you guys are leaving that's enough like we're done with you guys get out so the team usa guys saw this so then one of these dudes, I don't know who it was, um, leaked it to the media and I'm in the off season, you know, away from my NBA club and it's it's on hoops hype, you know, um, and it was it was made out like I did something. It didn't blow up really in Australia. Um, no one really gave a shit about basketball back then, thankfully, but it didn't blow up in Australia, but it blew up over there a little bit and my team was calling like, what are you doing? This, that, this. I'm just like, man, like I, I had to explain that I was sticking up for a teammate then I got caught, you know, guilty by association and they just booted us out um so that was that was pretty funny um you know those, those kind of silly things you do but i just remember like from a whole pr point of view and having my team now find out you know because look my team wasn't Milwaukee bucks weren't too fond of me going to play for the national team just because you know i was number one pick at that time making a lot of money and um even when you when i signed my extension it's like well you know we're paying you a lot of money to be good for us not for, not for your national team who's not paying you so you understood you understood that and then on top of that i'm getting in trouble and things are going wrong so that wrapped up that ended up flying home going away again for about a week up north um and then 
training started again with uh, Steve, quote unquote Steve. Um, not his real name, of course, but we end up doing a bit more, uh, working out a little bit more, um, doing the tour days, and then and then back in Milwaukee. I think it was a couple of weeks before training camp and getting ready um, to go again for my second NBA season. Now, this season was a better season um, for me. I started to feel a bit more comfortable, feeling better in my body. Much better season than my rookie year. Um, 12.3 points and 8.8 rebounds a night in around 30 minutes. Just just had glimpses of, of games, you know, 20 and 15, and then, you know, you'd have an 8 and 5 quiet night and, like, just started to get a little bit better. My consistency was still a bit of a problem game to game. I'd have a stretch of five awesome games and then three shitty ones and a young guy figuring it out, but the numbers weren't too shabby um, on a team that was still didn't know what we were as a team. Um, it was still one of those teams where we were figuring out what our identity was. Michael Red was our premier scorer. Mo Williams, they were trying to turn him more into a pass-first point guard. He was a scoring point guard, so there was some back and forth there. I believe that's the year we had Ruben Patterson, who had a really good year for us. Um, Earl Boykins was there, myself, so on and so forth. Um, but we end up being not very good, 28-54 and 54 record, um, so not, not great. I remember we were around 500 for the, for the first – month or so and then just just plateaued lost a lot of games um terry stotts was our head coach he ends up getting fired now something you know the degrees of separation with this were interesting larry krasoviak was our head assistant he was just hired um he was my kind of uh individual shooting coach got along with him really well um and i probably i probably gave terry uh a bit of a hard time because i came into the nba as i said on the last episode I thought Terry was really soft on on a lot of our stars, but I didn't understand the landscape of the NBA where I have to be nice to my max player for the most part as a coach because my max player, he's going to get me fired. I didn't understand all the intricacies of that, so I just came in from college hard-headed like, man, like if you're going to call out player 12, 13 on the roster, call out player 1 or player 2 or player 3, and I just felt like he didn't do that, which he didn't, um, but then once I'd been in the NBA a couple more years, I was like, oh, I was a bit hard on Terry because that's the political landscape of the NBA. Whether you like it or not, that's the reality. So I remember I get a call from the owner um, of the Milwaukee Bucks and my agent had told me, look, they might move Terry Stotts. They're thinking, they're thinking about about firing him and they're thinking about promoting uh, Larry Krasoviak as the interim coach and seeing how he goes. So I was like, yeah, I love Larry and I was he was my guy that worked me out. He had a bit of a mean streak in him, which I thought it was exactly what we needed. We needed a guy that would cuss us out every now and then when we needed to be cussed out. But the the kicker was the University of Utah called me and wanted a reference on the Okrasoviak for their head coaching position right at the same time this was going on. So I was like, oh, shit. So I called, um, I called my agent, and then I ended up getting a call from Senator Cole who was the owner and he said what's what's going on with larry k do you like him i said yeah i like him and i'm just i'm just giving you a heads up like utah is probably going to sign him the next the next week or so um because they just called me for a reference and they want him to run their program down there and that created a lot of leverage for krasoviak and then it ended up speeding up the firing of terry stotts because i know they were one foot in one foot out in the organization he ends up getting fired larry krasoviak takes over for the next 20 odd games um, whenever interim takes over 
on most teams I've been on or around or heard from teammates that have been involved in that process, it ends up being a breath of fresh air for a week or two. It's a new change. Guys are a bit more motivated. And, and we played like that with him. Uh, we, we I don't know what our record was to finish that season under him, but it felt like we were in many more games. Guys were playing harder. And it was interesting because... You know, he had never coached in the NBA. He come from mainly college experience. He was a former NBA player, but no coaching experience. And, and I, I thought he did a pretty good job to finish that season. As I said, I had a decent sophomore year. I end up, I still remember doing it. I end up spraining my foot late in the season with only, I mean, there would have been 15 to 20 games left, roughly speaking, right? I sprained my foot and I felt, I felt the sprain. And it wasn't, it really wasn't that bad. It felt like an ankle sprain, but one that no real swelling. I I actually practiced on it the next day. Just said, oh, I'm a little sore. And they said, we're going to get you a scan. So they get me a scan and they say, oh, you've got a, you've got a foot sprain. Um, We want you out for about four to six weeks and then bring you back. And I'm like, well, there's only four to six weeks left of the season. So I feel fine to play. Like, let me play. And at this point, I had never missed an NBA game. Like, I, I never missed an NBA game my rookie year, believe it or not. And um, I remember myself and Charlie Bell used to have like the, this is kind of funny looking back, considering the what was ahead, but we had the Iron Man challenge, um, which was who could play the most games without missing any drink, you know, streak of Iron Man, essentially. How many games in a row can you play without missing it for injury or sickness? And it was me and Charlie Bell leading, leading the team um, at that point. So, um yeah, we end up end up getting those results, and I was kind of like, "Oh man, they must have my my, my health in, in mind, my future health. Uh, that's very respectful. They're shutting me down, even though I said like I can play. I practiced on it already. I'm fine. It's not bothering me enough to shut me down. Like, oh no, no, we're just going to shut you down. And once I look back on it, reflect on it, it was it was clear they were they were tapping me on the shoulder to say, "Look, we can't make the playoffs right now. <laughs> There's no chance, even with a 20 game win streak." Um, we want to rest you up for next season and make sure you're perfectly healthy and not going to risk injury for maybe further hurting your foot or another injury. And we want to make sure we don't win any more games or win the minimal. Like we're at 20 games. If we go five and 15, that's a win for us because of the lottery pick. And that's when I really started to, you know, I didn't realize that for a year or two. I was like, what the hell? What the hell? Won't they let me play? I'm fine. I'm telling them I'm fine. I want to play for them. What's going on? And yeah, that's when I got a reality check into business of basketball and, and they lined up their marbles to say, well, shoot, if he's out of the lineup and a few other guys, we can probably lose a bit more games and, and, and really get our draft stock higher, um, get a higher lottery pick. And that's the business of the game. You, whether you like that or don't, but it just was with me used as a pawn in the mix, which I, I just, it was kind of shocking to me because it was all about, I, could, I definitely could have finished that season on that foot sprain. So frustrating year yet again, like I said, and, and, and Larry Larry K takes over as interim. They then sign him to another year for that following year. Um, we'll talk about that in, in, in the next episode, but he's he then becomes the head coach. Um, most of the guys said, look, as an interim, he did a pretty good job. A few guys didn't love him, but they said, look, he did a better job than we, than we thought. We'll give him another chance. And I was I was an advocate of his. I thought he did a good job with with the the hand he had dealt mid season, and um, yeah, that's how Larry Crisovia got involved with the Milwaukee Bucks. But that that's basically the season for me. Look, I missed one thing around the All Star game. So and I missed it last episode. I went to the All Star game two years in a row in the rookie sophomore challenge. 
which is now known as the World versus Young Stars or whatever they've, they've rebranded it as. But um, my rookie year, I went to it, and I think it was in Houston, my rookie year, I believe, and, and played pretty well in it, had a really good game. I just could not stand the weekend, man. It was all about Hollywood and, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like today. It'd be even worse. Um, but I, I'd much rather have, have had my four or five days off to rest and go somewhere warm and chill out rather than go on to that. But I went and I experienced it. Just wasn't fond of it. They have you They have you basically on a leash doing so many different things. No rest for the wicked. Um, and this is your mid-season break for most guys, especially a guy in his rookie year. So I would have much preferred to just chill out. But... Um, I just realized that all the shenanigans going on with, with that stuff was, was interesting. And look, there's a lot of money to be made as well. You can um, get a lot of appearances and signing, you know, go do some public signings, some photo opportunities and, and get paid a lot of money. A lot of guys that aren't even all-stars will go to an all-star weekend and hang around and get some some deals through the NBA or through their club to do different kinds of things. That's what it's all about with all-star weekend. But I didn't enjoy it. Didn't enjoy it at all. I was like, man, like this is not not kind of what I like. I was a top three rookie my rookie year, so I had to go and be part of it. So I went my sophomore year as well. That one was in Las Vegas, even bigger shit show. I believe there was a shooting there at the time, actual gun shooting, not basketball shooting, but there was, there was all that going on. There was some gang violence around it. Um, it was like every good, bad, and not so bad person um, around basketball was there. Uh, just was not something that I liked, and, and there was just you know, I remember it was traffic jams everywhere because the All-Star Weekend was there. It just wasn't enjoyable and we had to go do all these events and I played in that game, didn't play as well. just was kind of like, I just want to get out of here. Ended up being a, a shooting competition between um, the guards. I think we had Monte Ellis and D. Will and Chris Paul versus whoever the sophomore team was and it just ended up being a guard shootout of big just running yeah. out of the court. I was like, nice. I'm not I'm not about these All-Star type games. I don't play, play well in them for the most part because it's just not, not something I do. I'm not that flashy kind of type of guy. Um, but that was just a note around the All-Star Weekend and couldn't wait to get out of Vegas. And um, I will just claim that's why I didn't want to be an All-Star ever again um, and, and never got an All-Star berth. I strategically, you know, planned not to be. <laughs> that's sarcasm. Um, but, yeah, that, those, those weekends weren't fun for me and I'd much rather, you know, of course I would have taken being a, an all-star in the future and, and almost got that later on in my career and just missed out. But, of course, I would have taken that over over a five-day break. But the rookie sophomore game, probably not so much. It's the same as I know Joe Ingles has been invited many times to the three-point shootout and he says no because he just wants five days with his family in the sun to chill out and kind of decompress and get ready for phase two of the season. And you don't blame some guys for that. So I know he's notorious for saying saying no to the NBA and they get, <laughs> they get pretty pissed at him. Just to round this off, off the court, I was living in an apartment my rookie year slash probably the first couple of months of my sophomore second year in the NBA. Ended up buying a house uh, about 30-odd minutes from downtown. Man, this house, if, if I showed you this home for most people living in, in Australia, at least in big cities, the best value for money I've ever um, bought anything for, it was $1 million on the nose, um, five-bedroom home, brand new, with a basement, three levels, theater room, um, it had three car garage. It was on an acre and a half, a beautiful kind of slight hill, tree line backyard, $1 million, man. Like you just like, and you know, Milwaukee is a smaller, smaller city kind of, um, blue collar city. So you don't have a lot of premium, super expensive homes there, but, um, it's gone up now, but, um, I just recently sold that actually, but, uh, about five, five, six years ago, but yeah, that was, that was kind of the home, um, that I, 
that I lived in while I was in Milwaukee. And I still remember that home, you know, growing from a boy to a man in that home. Um, end up buying two dogs, funnily enough, but buy two Siberian Huskies. Um, funny story around that. Bought one in Australia in that off season. And then when we got back to the US and moved into the house, we bought a second one. So we had one Aussie and one American Siberian Husky. And unfortunately, they passed away all within a few months of each other in 2019, I believe it was, which which kind of sucked. Or 2018, sorry, um, which, which wasn't great, but they had a very good life. And they got me through a lot of bad times um, when you're up and down mentally. So the dogs were, were great, great, great dogs. And, and it kind of made sense living in Milwaukee with the snow. But love that house. Living out in the boonies, the other thing I did was I, I got bored my second year in the NBA. And what, is it, what does a young kid do with stupid amounts of money? I went and bought a four-wheeler. Uh, I put a plow on it. Yes, a plow, a snow plow. And I, would, I, I plowed my driveway a few times. Um, until I realized how hard it was and how long it took with a four-wheeler and just started paying someone to do it. But um, that was good fun. I also bought a snowmobile of all things. So in Wisconsin, there's a bunch of the walking trails. Uh, hopefully it's still like this and it hasn't gone too, um, you know, unsafe to do so, OHS or PC, whatever you want to call it. But you could you could basically drive your or ride your snowmobile on all the walking trails around town, um, out of the, out of the city, obviously, and just go with your with your snowmobile with a bunch of other friends that have snowmobiles. So I was just going out by myself sometimes for two or three hours and just going for a cruise on a snowmobile. Like I had no idea how to ride them, never ridden one before, ridden a motorbike, grew up on four wheelers, but just jumped on this thing and, and that was good fun. So at least I ticked that box and, and that's what I was doing in my spare time. Uh, the club had no idea that I was doing that. Uh, I guess they'll find out now, but I, I was just out and about. Never hurt myself doing it was a really good stress release and just took my mind off off whatever was going on but i remember um these trails were pretty cool though like in wisconsin there was which got a lot of people in trouble there there's actual trails that lead to the diners and and little bars and pubs and stuff along the way so like the trail will, will point you towards a set of shops and you can stop there and have a drink and problem was people were having too many drinks and ended up hitting trees and killing themselves or killing other people so they've They've tailored that back a lot, but it was uh, just a cool little culture there in Milwaukee. I really had a, had a great time doing all that, and I just thought, why not get out and about in the community with something that they do? And that meant snowmobiling for the most part. So that is it for episode nine of uh, the My Journey series. I hope you appreciate this. I know I had a lot of people asking, when's your next My Journey? When's your next My Journey? I'm in the process of setting up a studio, which will take another couple of months, I assume. And once that gets set up, we'll be able to pump these out much more. But I appreciate all the support and everyone asking about these. They're, they're fun to do, fun to relive. Some pretty quirky stories, um, some random shit that I just have in in my noggin um, that I write down and talk about. And I hope um, you get some value out of them. But we will continue on to episode 10 next uh, so keep a lookout for that within the next month two year I'm not sure decade hopefully so I don't break my nuts too much but it'll be out there pretty soon um, and that will be about my third year um, in the NBA which um, comes with a whole bunch of new challenges so thanks once again for joining me at Rogue Bogues on all your social media platforms on Instagram on Twitter on Facebook all good podcasts have good old Rogue Bogues and we are now on YouTube as well. And by the way, I'm hoping to have video uh, for this once our studio is set up. So you can look at my beautiful face while I'm talking shit about fireworks and all kinds of other dumb shit. So appreciate the support. Share this and give me some feedback if you like the episodes. Thanks.